This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host Jee Sampath. По полудню в 12 часов полностью был взят Бахмут. On May 20th, Russian forces managed to take control over the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. The quote-unquote battle of Bakhmut as it has been called has been raging for 9 months and has seen some of the bloodiest fighting in Europe since World War II. With Ukraine investing a lot of its resources in defending the city, the fight for it has taken on a symbolic significance. In his speech to the US Congress last year, President Volodymyr Zelensky even compared it to the decisive battle of Saratoga in the American War of Independence. But now, thanks primarily to the Wagner Group, Bakhmut is in Russian hands. What are the strategic implications of the fall, so to speak, of Bakhmut? Is it a pyrrhic victory for the Russians, as Ukraine and Western observers seem to suggest? Whose forces, the Russians or the Ukrainians? whose forces have been degraded more by this long drawn battle of attrition we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us stanley johnny the hindu's international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us good to have you back thank you sambath thanks for having me so stanley uh, this battle has been going on uh, for 9 months plus Why is Bakhmut so important in the context of the ongoing war? What is so special about it in the context of in the military context? Uh, so, so you know, we see a lot of literature of late in the media that Bakhmut's strategic importance is so less, as if both Ukraine and Russia fought for nothing over the last ten months. Uh, so, uh, you know. the some of the reasons listed out are bakhmut is not a military garrison city i mean it's not a major population center the pre war population is some uh, 70000 people and it's uh, no uh, is it uh, an industrial hub etc etc but if you look at the course of the war you know two things to be noted one russia wants to take over the whole of the donbas region that the russians have made it clear uh, you know uh, in in um, many times may on many occasions so they have taken almost whole of lugansk since last september lugansk has been with the russians so they took uh, severodonetsk and lysychansk in september so since then they have built fortifications etc etc and lugansk is with them so donbas region comprises both lugansk and donetsk so the battle is still going on the war is still going on in donetsk so in donetsk the remaining major population centers in donetsk if you look at the map one is kramatorsk and the other is slovyansk so if the russians wanted to move on to this two regions they need bakhmut so you look at it from russia's strategic goals military objectives they wanted bakhmut if they have to take over the whole of the donbas region that makes bakhmut important and bakhmut is also at the intersection cross section of uh, you know all these uh, uh, cities in donetsk because there is this uh, uh, you know highway that is leading from bakhmut to kramatorsk and slovyansk 
So from a strategic point of view, it is important for the Russians to take the city and then make their next move if they wanted to take, because it's been, uh, you know, um, Kramatorsk has been under the uh, Russian radar for a long time. Uh, so that is the Russian point of view. From a Ukrainian point of view, see, Zelensky visited Bakhmut in December. He visited the front line. So he made it, he made the battle for Bakhmut as a prestigious battle for the Ukrainians. And when he visited Washington in the same month, in, uh, in, in December last year, we saw that Zelensky, you know, uh, 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 waving a flag of Bakhmut in the U.S. Congress. And he said Bakhmut, he called Bakhmut the fortress of our morale. He said the fight for Bakhmut will change the trajectory of our war for independence and freedom. And again, you look at the UK military, uh, UK defense military's uh, report, which says if Bakhmut falls, that would potentially allow Russia to threaten the larger uh, areas in Donetsk, including Kramatorsk and Slovansk, uh, Sloviansk. So, I mean, the city has uh, political and strategic significance, you know, contrary to what we are told in mainstream media, uh, especially in Western media now. And because without that reasoning, I don't think the Ukrainians would have spent this much time, energy, resources to defend the city. So, yeah, that's what it is. At the end of the day, you know, a loss is a loss, irrespective of how, what spin you are giving to it. And the Ukrainians defended the city, turning Bakhmut into the battle for Bakhmut into probably the longest and the bloodiest battle of the 21st century, but eventually they lost control of the city, which has now been confirmed. Right. I mean, a loss is a loss, as you put it. Now, I mean, we, we, I mean, you have made it very sort of explain it really well how uh, it has a lot of political significance and also from the point of view of Russia's uh, military goals uh, in terms of you know taking control of uh, the Donbas region. As such, it is very important to take this city. And nonetheless, there is another point uh, which is being made uh, primarily by uh, Western analysts who are saying that. Okay, you've got Bakhmut now, it might be of strategic importance, but the city is completely a ruins now, you know, and number one, it's a ruin. Number two, Russia has used up so much of its equipment and personnel in taking the city uh, that it is going to be considerably weakened when it comes to meeting the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is going to be, you know, happen very uh, anytime now. And this is exactly where the West would like Russia to be considerably weakened when the time for the counter-offensive with its, uh, you know, extra the new supplies of weaponry from the West, uh, which are going to be very critical for its counter-offensive. When that happens, Russia would find itself having used up a lot of its resources in this battle of Bakhmut. How do you uh, respond to this assessment? Okay, so uh, first of all, the point about the city has been destroyed, which is, I think, true, because now we we see images and drawn footages about the heart of the city, which has been practically destroyed. Uh, New York Times had an aerial footage, which was released two days ago. Now you have more photos from the city. Uh, so, but you know, this is the tragedy of urban warfare because you, we saw this in Fallujah in Iraq, in Mosul, when Mosul was liberated from the ISIS by the Iraqi troops, who were helped by the Iranians and under the aerial cover of the US 
military jets. You know, after Mosul was liberated, we can go back and check the, check the photographs. The city was completely decimated. So this is, I think, this is the tragedy of modern urban warfare. So it leads to, because in Bakhmut also, they fought for every inch of the city, for every up buildings, for every building, for every apartment block. That basically led to the destruction of the city. <clears throat> and we don't know how many people are remaining in the city. It had a pre-war population of uh, 70,000, uh, as we discussed earlier. So yes, I think the city is in the ruins. Uh, but it also, uh, if the Russians manage to hold the city, they can rebuild it because I think Mariupol also, when the Russians took Mariupol, or when the Syrians took Aleppo, you know, I, I'm sure you remember photographs about Aleppo, and then later on we saw Christmas celebrations from Aleppo. So the victor would rebuild the city. Uh, but it's true that uh, the fighting, the 10 months long fighting, it is, uh, you know, uh, and it is also a bloody fighting. And both sides refer to Bakhmut uh, uh, as a meat grinder. So that has uh, practically destroyed the city. And the second point is, which is a very valid point, very valid assessment, because the battle actually held the Russians in Bakhmut or, or a substantial, uh, you know, chunk of Russian resources uh, in Bakhmut fighting the Ukrainians over the 10 months, right? And the analysis is that it could potentially weaken, uh, you know, Russia's further offensives or Russia's ability to defend the 1,200 or 1,300 long front line once the Ukrainians launch the counteroffensive. Apparently, the Ukrainians have already launched the counteroffensive. That's what even the even Zelensky's presidential advisor is saying, which has been now going on. So this is one assessment. But there is also a counter question, right? So let me ask the, I mean, for the sake of being the devil's advocate, let me ask the counter question. The 10-month-long war also held the Ukrainians in Bakhmut. And the Ukrainians also lost tens of thousands of soldiers. And at the end of the day, the Ukrainians lost the city as well. Both sides lost men. Both sides lost resources, both sides lost uh, uh, equipment, but at the end of the battle, one side lost the battle. So that 10 months when actual fighting took place inside Bakhmut, that period also provided the Russians time to build fortifications along the border. What about this counter question? Because the Russians had mobilized, they did a partial mobilization last year, after their initial thrust into Ukraine failed to meet their declared objectives. And after they did the partial mobilization, they need time. They need time to train them. Also, they, they, they suffered a series of setbacks last year during last summer, pre-summer, during the spring period. They lost uh, tons of territories in Kharkiv. They lost, uh, they had to pull back from Kherson. So, you know, uh, uh, that was a period when the Ukrainians were making advances. So the Russians also needed time to build fortifications. They needed time to train their own uh, freshly mobilized troops. So what the Russians did, I mean, from their point of view, was to hold the Ukrainians in Bakhmut and destroying the Ukrainian formations inside Bakhmut, which also provided them time to mobilize their own troops and build uh, defense fortifications. So there are these two arguments. You know, on the one side, the Ukrainians would say that the Battle of Bakhmut would uh, weaken the Russian capacity for further offensives. 
On the other side, the Russians would say that uh, the Battle of Bakhmut provided them much needed time in the middle of a war to prepare themselves for the Ukrainian counteroffensives. So I think we need to consider both uh, arguments. And also, uh, you know, um, another important point is that, uh, see, over the last uh, few months, uh, the West had, has, you know, uh, stepped up uh, supply of one of their, some of their most advanced offensive and defensive weapons to Ukraine, which was not the case last year at this, this time, when the Ukrainians actually made gains. The West was supplying only limited number of weapons. But ever since, you, you know, we discussed it in several episodes of this podcast, uh, the West has sent Leopard uh, 2 tanks and uh, uh, striker armored vehicles, uh, different uh, uh, types of uh, precision munition, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the uh, defense, uh, uh, Patriot missile defense systems, and re recently, uh, the UK has sent long-range missiles, Storm Shadow long-range missiles. Uh, so Ukraine has now some of the world's most powerful and advanced weapons. Still, they fail to defend the city. I think that is an important factor which we have to consider. Right. I mean, uh, I, I guess one could say that it's, it's sort of a little difficult, maybe a little early to say, whether it's the Russian forces or the Ukrainian forces, which have been degraded more or suffered a bigger uh, loss of equipment and resources because of uh, the nine-month-long battle of attrition in uh, Bakhmut. But then I was just wondering, Stanley, uh, the Ukraine doesn't seem to have an issue in terms of supplies of weaponry because the West is sort of uh, standing ready to give it more and more, whereas the Russians seem to have some kind of a rationing system going on for ammunition and so on. We saw this with the case of uh, the Wagner Group chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has been sort of uh, putting out a series of rants in video form against the Russian military leadership for not supplying his forces with adequate ammunition. So I was just wondering, uh, what do you make of the tensions between Prigozhin and the Russian military? And now that he has been able to deliver a victory for Russia, uh, which the conventional armed forces were not able to do, how do you think this is going to affect the relationship, A, with the military, and B, with the Kremlin? So uh, I think there is some kind of tension between Wagner and the MOD. That's what we understand. But what exactly is going on, it's very difficult uh, to fathom. Because the Kremlin, as we understand, has very vert vertical power structures. So um, why Prigozhin? is allowed to vent his anger publicly is the question. So I saw a story in Wall Street Journal this morning saying that this shows that Putin's control is getting weakened, which is which could be a possibility. Uh, you know, so if we consider all possibilities, I can broadly say there are three narratives. So one is that there are serious, there is a serious rift between the Wagner and Shoigu, a Wagner chief. Eugenie Prigozhin and Shoigu, uh, the defense minister. Uh, so we, that is what we are witnessing. So since Wagner is making some military gains, he has you know, improved his uh, standing in Kremlin so that he can attack the defense ministry or the Russian establishment publicly. If that is what is happening, I think, yes, it is true that Putin's hold or 
you know, his there are cracks in his hold, his iron grip over Russia's different institutions and armed forces. And the second possibility is that I, you know, Putin is allowing this to happen because he might be allowing this competition between Wagner, which is making results for him, and the Russian generals, whose you know actual military plans didn't succeed as per plans that we know that now, right? Because they went into Ukraine promising a quick victory that never materialized. So then the Russians had to do partial mobilization, bring in Wagner, bring in drums and Kadyrov, and then you know change the battle plans and fight a battle of attrition, which is now going on. So maybe the Kremlin is tolerating some kind of power struggle within the system, as long as Prigozhin doesn't cross the line. So you look at Prigozhin's statement, he never attacks the Kremlin. You look at Ramsar Kadyrov's statement, he never attacks the Kremlin. They attack only the military establishment. So for them, Putin, they always keep Putin above the criticism. So some kind of this rift is being tolerated by the Kremlin. That is the second possibility. The third possibility is that it is part of an information warfare. They are sending mixed signals to uh, the rival. When Prigozhin is attacking the MOD, you know, he is making these videos. Uh, so he is trying to confuse the enemy, which is also possible, one possibility. Because now you can see that immediately after Wagner took over the city, you know, the, the, you know there is no rift apparent rift between the MOD and the Wagner, because Wagner now says that they will sweep the city, and by June 1st week, they will hand it over to the Russian Defense Ministry. They will hand it over to the regular military. So there is no rift. Wagner doesn't want to keep the city, right? So some kind of coordination is there. So what exactly is going on, I think it's very difficult for us to understand. It is, I mean, it is sensible to think that there is some kind of tension between Wagner and uh, uh, and the MOD and the military establishment, but whether this is being tolerated by Kremlin or whether this indicates cracks in Putin's coalition, internal coalition, or whether this is actually part of some kind of an information, misinformation campaign or tactical campaign, we don't know. Uh, I think uh, uh, that's the situation. Right. When you, you just mentioned that, you know, uh, Prigozhin has said that he's going to hand over Bakhmut to the Russian uh, forces, conventional forces, and then withdraw. And I, I was just going to quote his precise uh, words. He says, uh, I quote, from June 1, not a single Wagner fighter will be at the front until we undergo reorganization, re-equipment, and additional training, unquote. Now, I mean, it's all very well to hand over the territory to the Russian army and so on, but what has necessitated this kind of, I don't know, it seems a bit uh, a bit too harsh in my opinion, my, my, to my mind. Like, I mean, you're saying none of them will be at the front until they undergo reorganization, re-equipment. It looks like they've been completely depleted in Bakhmut, which is sort of, is that why they this kind of uh, withdrawal or a retreat is necessary, uh, found to be necessary for the Wagner group and what could be the impact because they've been the most successful of fighting units. You know, if they are going to all of them withdraw from the front, how is it going to affect the military effectiveness of uh, Russian forces? So um, even the Russian military bloggers uh, saying were saying after they uh, after uh, the fall of Bakhmut was that Russia's focus would now be on defense. Uh, also, you know, considering the fact that Ukraine is now carrying out their counteroffensive operation. And Bakhmut, specifically in the case of Bakhmut, Prigozhin also said yesterday that 
uh, you know, their casualties were around 20,000, which is huge, apparently, including those who got wounded or uh, got killed. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, it is it is understandable if Rogoshin says that they need to go for, I mean, they need to reorganize and undertake training because after such an exhausting uh, battle in Dartmouth, uh, uh, you know, after suffering that kind of casualties. And also they, they also saw in Bakhmut in recent days, major reinforcements from the Russians. And the Russians also claim that what the Ukrainians did, they withdrew from the city, though uh, some say that they are still holding on to one pocket, but mostly effectively they withdrew from the city. Whereas from the two flanks of Bakhmut, the Ukrainians were trying to advance. So their claim was that they would entrap the Russians. But what Prigozhin says is that now that they have taken over the city, they will clean it up and then hand it over to the defense ministry or the Russian military, who will defend the city, which would give Wagner time uh, you know, to reorganize itself. And Wagner also doesn't want to keep the city, uh, you know, out, the city that they took. They don't want to keep it. They want to hand it over to the Russian ministry. Uh, so I think when, and the Russians also claim that the situation on the flanks have now been stabilized, but they also say, uh, uh, you know, even pro-Russian military bloggers are saying that Ukraine is, Ukraine is making major reinforcements and even uh, positional fighting is still continuing on the flanks. So I think, I mean, if you try to understand what they are saying, what Wagner boss is saying, is that they have taken the city, now they will retreat from the city, focus on the reorganization, while the regular Russian forces would continue to defend the city, not just Bakhmut, but along the, uh, you know, uh, the front line, which is now run, running into 1,200, 1,300 kilometers. And the Ukrainians on the other side is focusing on, they are, they are attacking on the flanks of Bakhmut, I think one of their major focus of the counteroffensive is Saporishia for the south, because Saporishia, even uh, the leaked documents, uh, leaked by the US uh, official, the leaked documents also suggested that the Ukrainian plan was actually to move into Saporishia and cut off Russians, basically uh, disrupt Russia's land bridge from Donbass to uh, Crimea. Uh, so Ukraine is. You know, Ukraine's counteroffensive is going. So Bakhmut's, uh, Wagner's point of view is that they have taken the city and they need time to reorganize themselves, particularly after suffering such, uh, you know, huge casualties. So the regular defense forces would build the defenses, would continue to defend the city. I think this is the plan. That is what we understand from their statements. Right. So, uh, Stanley, coming to the Ukrainian uh, perspective here, I mean, some military experts, we know, they had warned uh, Zelensky against going all out in defending Bakhmut. But of course, he did not uh, take that advice and he did seek more and more advanced weaponry for this Battle of Bakhmut. He went to the US Congress and gave a speech there about it. We all know about it. Now, now that Bakhmut has fallen, uh, quote unquote, fallen to the Russians, do you think, how do you think this is going to affect Ukraine's ability to get more advanced weapons from the West? Uh, or you know, is it going to affect them negatively, or is it going to like encourage the West to supply these advanced weapons quicker and in greater numbers than before, so that you know uh, the the terms of engagement you know gives an additional advantage uh, to Ukraine, so to speak. So my sense is that 
Ukraine is not going to face any problem in getting more weapons from the West. So you look at the G7 uh, summit, which just took place, or the statements that came right before the G7, that there is an F-16 training program going on. And uh, it's just uh, two weeks ago that the UK uh, decided to send uh, long-range missiles. This was the first time that a Western country was sending long-range missiles. And initially at the war, the Americans kept saying that Ukraine should not attack Russian territory, you know, deep inside Russia. So that was one of the, apparently, according to reports, uh, that was one of the preconditions of weapon supplies to Ukraine. But I don't think they bother anymore because, uh, you know, Russian territory is being hit now on a daily basis. So just uh, two days ago, Ukrainian saboteurs, they closed the border uh, in the Bolgorod region uh, where, you know, some attack took place. Now the Russians claim that it has been stabilized. And even inside Ukraine, uh, you know, Kremlin uh, was attacked by drones just a few weeks ago. Yesterday, New York Times had a report citing American intelligence officials saying that the Kremlin drone attack was orchestrated by the Ukrainian intelligence. Uh, the United States has supplied advanced attack drones to the Ukrainians. Uh, so, um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the British long-range missiles have also been used by the Ukrainians to target Russian territory. Uh, so there were a lot of reports that, so such considerations do not factor uh, anymore in the Western calculus of supplying weapons to Ukraine. I think they also realized that if they don't supply weapons to Ukraine, the Ukrainian defense could collapse, right? Uh, because even despite supplying weapons, Ukraine Ukraine did well uh, in defending, in delaying the Russian takeover of Bakhmut. There is no doubt about it. They also caused immense uh, losses on the Russian side. But still, my point is that at the end of the day, a loss is a loss. So the West thinks that if the supply of weapons uh, uh, gets disrupted, the Ukrainian uh, defense would collapse. And also, you see, they all bet on the counteroffensive. Now, this is the biggest bet. Ukraine has lost Bakhmut. The momentum they built after taking Kherson has been reversed by the Russians. So now they have to rebuild that momentum. They need to show that they can win back territories. The Ukrainians have, have to show back because at this point of time, you know, irrespective of what the Western leaders are telling us, Russia controls some 19% of Ukrainian territory. So if the Ukrainians go for talks today, the Ukrainians know that they are at a weakening, weakened position, at a disadvantageous position. So they need to turn it around. And to turn it around, I think their opportunity is the counteroffensive. And the flow of weapons is to strengthen this counteroffensive, whether it is Leopard tanks, long-range missiles, attack drones, precision bombs. Uh, defensive systems, et cetera, et cetera, or even F-16. I think F-16 would be supplied to Ukraine. It's a matter of time. Now the training position is going on. So the flow of weapons, I don't think, would be affected irrespective of the losses the Ukrainians suffer. Rather, the West thinks that if the flow of weapons are affected, you know, the war would be in trouble. Ukraine would be in serious trouble. So there would be flow of weapons. The question is, the you know, uh, do you have enough soldiers to continue to defend because if the war continues like this, as both sides take huge tolls, particularly Ukrainians, uh, that is the question because the West cannot provide men, they can provide only weapons. 
So I think the bet, the big bet, is on counter offensive. But the West can, uh, can, but the but the West can arrange for mercenaries, right? I mean, there are uh, there are like Wagner equivalents in the West as well. One would assume. Yeah, yeah, which is there, which they they're already doing. I think this international legion uh, for Ukraine that it's been part of the uh, war, and we have also seen reports of Americans being taken, the British soldiers being arrested in Ukraine. There were different uh, uh, reports about that. Ex-Marines, you know, that, that's how they put it. Mercenaries can be arranged, but I think uh, still we are talking about huge volume. People, you know, tens of thousands of people getting killed, hundreds of people getting killed in the front line every day. This is that kind of a land war. So it would be difficult to ensure flow of men, uh, soldiers. But, you know, weapons are being done, which is also good news for the weapons companies, because suddenly there is a huge demand for uh, their weapons in Ukraine's battlefield. Uh, and all these weapon supplies are funded by, uh, funded or, you know, uh, by uh, military assistance issued by the United States or Europe. Uh, so, you know, some people are, it, it's benefiting the weapons companies as well. So that's the point. Uh, so I think the Military supplies would not be affected. Right. That's what my take from this. Right. Anyway, so we are running out of time, uh, Stanley. So, uh, so it does look like now the next uh, big development or uh, or the event that is going to uh, sort of we are going to watch see in the Ukraine uh, Russia war is the counter offensive from the Ukrainian side. I think Russians are already bracing for it. And the West is sort of counting on that to sort of turn the tide of the war in Ukraine's favor. We'll have to wait and watch how that unfolds. Thank you so much for joining us, Stanley, and for sharing your thoughts and observations on the fall of Bakhmut. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandra. We will continue this conversation. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.